In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, the King James Version says this, the Apostle Paul writing to the young evangelist Timothy in the long ago when he said, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. The New King James reads this way, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. We know about this command that the Apostle Paul gave Timothy, a young evangelist, so long ago. How many times have we read this verse and preached the idea of preaching the word all the time? But what we want to do today is we want to take it a step further. Because in the very text, in the very letter that Paul is writing to Timothy, the same letter, he gives five compelling reasons to preach the word. And I hope and pray that when we get finished with our time this morning, we will see that there's a greater need to preach the word today than ever before. Prison is the last place from which to expect a letter of encouragement. But that's exactly where the Apostle Paul's second letter to Timothy originates. He begins by assuring Timothy of his continuing love and prayers and reminds him of his spiritual heritage and responsibilities. Only the one who perseveres, whether as a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, or a minister of Jesus Christ will reap the reward. The Apostle Paul warns Timothy that his teaching will come under attack as men desert the truth for ear-itching words. But Timothy has Paul's example to guide him and God's word to fortify him as he faces growing opposition and glowing opportunities in the last days. Notice going back to our text in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse uh, we want to begin there in verse 2, where the Apostle Paul says, Preach the word. Be instant or be ready in season and out of season. You know, the word season there could be translated as that which is convenient or that which is inconvenient. What's he saying? He is saying you're going to preach the word. That is a general command. And then he's going to add time and tone. He doesn't just say preach the word. He adds time and tone. First time. He says do it in season and out of season. In other words, when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. You know, it's very convenient for me to stand in this pulpit today and preach from God's word to all of you that have come to hear God's word and worship God. That's very convenient for me to do so. That is easy for me to do. That's convenient. But Paul told Timothy, you need to preach even when it is not convenient. So if every time we preach could be lumped into one of two categories, either convenient or inconvenient, Paul is saying this, Timothy, you preach the word all the time. You preach the word all the time. Be ready to do that. Now what about the idea of tone? He gives the idea of tone by, by addressing two kinds of preaching. There's a negative aspect to preaching, and there's a positive aspect to preaching. The negative aspect is reproving or convincing and rebuking. And that's when we take the word of God and we confront error and when we confront sin. Then on the positive side, we take the truth of the word of God and we exhort with great patience and we instruct. So from a negative idea, a negative aspect, we are to take the word of God, be ready to do it all the time, and convince and confront 
and correct error and sin. Positively, we teach sound doctrine and godly living. We exhort people to be obedient to the word of God. And we have great patience because that's what Paul says. Do it with patience or long-suffering. You know, whether we're doing the negative aspect of preaching or the positive aspect of preaching, the tone in which we do it is still applicable. It still matters. We need to do it patiently and in an instructive manner. You know, you can talk to somebody about a very negative subject. You can talk to somebody that is living in sin, and you can lovingly take God's word to them and instruct them and correct that error in their life. Sometimes people say, well, that's being judgmental and unloving. Absolutely not. The greatest love that I could ever demonstrate to anybody in this world is when they are in error or doing something that is wrong or doing something that's going to cause them to lose their soul. And I lovingly, with great patience, understanding, and instruction, take the word of God and help them correct that in their life. What about exhortation? To exhort, I love that, it's to encourage. One scholar said that exhortation of God's word is like this. It's like encouraging somebody to do something they already know to be right. That tells me that there needs, there's, there's going to be a little bit of repetition in our preaching. I'm not saying preach the same sermons over and over and over. That's a good way to lose your audience. I'm saying that the concepts, the concepts are repeated, especially concerning Godly living. So we correct error, absolutely. But we encourage to do the things that are right with God's word. Paul says, when do you do it? You do it all the time. If all of our sermons, the last point along this line, if every sermon that we preach, though, is negative, every one, we are only preaching half of what Paul said to do. And if every sermon that we ever preach is positive, we're only preaching half of what Paul said to do. We gotta preach it all. It all applies. It has that power. There's a greater need, I believe, to preach the word of God more than ever before today. People today are starving for the word of God. And sadly, many don't even know it. They're starving, they're hungry, they're reaching out, they're grasping. They realize that there is vacancies in their life. They realize that there are hollow places and shallow places in their life. People are looking for meaning today. They're looking for something to hang their hat on. They're looking for something to believe in. Have you not found that? People want something of substance in their life. You know what in essence they're really doing? They're starving for the word of God. And you know what the problem is? They're offered many substitutes in this world. There are substitutes that take the place of the word of God in far too many people's lives. And all they really need is the word of God. Greatest need ever today to preach God's word. <clears throat> God has ordained that his word be brought to the lost. And the method is preaching. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that means obeying the, the, the Lord, obeying the gospel, shall be saved. And then he says, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? 
a preacher, somebody to take the word to those that are lost and those that need it. Now, our mandate then comes not from culture, but our mandate comes from heaven. And God told us to preach the word, every word. We need to be like the Apostle Paul who preached the whole council and kept back nothing that was profitable. There are things that are profitable for us that are hard for us to even hear. But it's profitable. We all need it. In fact, some of the things that we really need are difficult in our life. It's hard to hear it. You know what a parent says to their kid when they're punishing them or restricting them or correcting them? I'm doing this for your good. What's the child say? Well, if you say something out loud, you might get a whipping. But I'll tell you what you're thinking. I was there too. What you're thinking is, yeah, right. My own good. I'm not buying that at all. But the things that are for our good, most of them are difficult to hear and hard for us to apply in our life. That's what we need, though. Those are things that are found in God's word. So Paul says to Timothy here, preach the word. When are you going to do it? You're going to do it all the time. You're going to do the negative aspect of it, reproving and rebuking. You're going to do the positive aspect of it in an exhortation and encouragement and instruction. And you're going to do all of that patiently, patiently. we got to have patience, especially with new, uh, a babe in Christ. We teach with patience. Now, I don't want to just leave it at that. Because in this text, there are five compelling reasons that we can dig and pull out. Reasons why we need to preach the word of God. Notice. The first thing that we want to notice is going back to chapter 3 now. Now remember this. This was a continuous letter. It was not in chapter and verse form. It was a continuous letter, and therefore we look at it as such. So before he says to preach the word, he says these things. Notice first chapter 3 and verse 1 from the New King James. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Let me just address the, the last days for just a moment. Now, the last days is referring, as you know, is referring to the last dispensation of time. The word dispensation means spiritual arrangement. In other words, he's saying in this last spiritual arrangement, perilous times will come. Now, you know, man was under the patriarchal age or the family dispensation or spiritual arrangement all the way back with the patriarchs where God dealt with the head of families, therefore the patriarchal age or dispensation. Then there was the mosaical age or the national arrangement where God dealt with man through a nation, the nation of Israel. What did Jesus do, though? The Bible says that Jesus took that old law, and I'm so thankful that he did, and he nailed it to the cross. That's no longer in effect. What's in effect? The last days, the Christian dispensation, where God deals with you, and he deals with me, and he deals with everybody in this world exactly the same through his Son and our Savior Jesus, through the church. That's the last days. Why did I make that point? Because if I can make this point to us, that we are still in the last days and there's not going to be another dispensation of time after this one where God will deal with man on this earth, 
we're still in the last days, then every single thing that Paul warned about still applies today. And that's the point. What's the number one or the first thing that we're going to talk about today? Why preach the word of God? We preach the word of God. You know that word perilous in the King James and in the New King James? That word perilous means dangerous. It means difficult. Want to hear another one? It means savage. Savage times will come. The word times there doesn't mean what time it is, and it has nothing to do with a calendar. The word times means seasons. It means epics. Now, the first thing that we want to notice is we need to preach the word of God because of the danger of the seasons. The danger of the seasons. You know, this is a very interesting word, too, because this word, this Greek word that's translated times or seasons or epics is also translated like this. This will really hit home. Another word for that is movements. What's he saying? Preach the word. Why? Because of the danger of the movements. The danger of the seasons. Now, these seasons or movements threaten the gospel. They threaten the church. And according to verse 13, look at verse 13. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. These seasons or movements are the enemy of the gospel. It's the enemy of God's people. And these are going to be those that are going to be impostors. It'll increase in severity and it'll get worse and worse and worse. Interesting, isn't it? Let me suggest some of these to us today. The first most prominent great epic or movement of danger was thrust upon the church in about the fourth century. With the development of the Holy Roman Empire and Constantine. When Constantine said that he saw before a very decisive battle that he won. He said that he looked up into the sky and he saw the sign of the cross. And under it, these words with this sign, conquer. Let me back up just a little bit. We don't have time to go there, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul was writing to the church at Thessalonica. And remember what he was saying? They misunderstood when the Lord was going to come back. They thought he was going to come back not only very soon, not only in their lifetime, but so soon that they rejected all of their daily obligations and responsibilities. And Paul had to correct that. He said that that's not going to happen in 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, until there be a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Then here's these words. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. You see, back in that time, the state's religion in Rome was paganism. Something was going to happen. What happened? He had to be taken out of the way. The resistance of the Roman Empire. So when Constantine said that he saw the sign of the cross and all that, and went in with this great decisive battle, guess what happened? Behind the church at Rome was the full force of the Roman Empire. And all of a sudden, that led to the apostasy. That began back in the 4th century. And that brought in the very first dangerous epic season, time, or movement. And that was sacramentalism. 
Sacramentalism was salvation by automatic ritual. Friends, that brought in the Catholic system. It became an enemy of the true gospel, the enemy of the church. It was the instrument of persecution and execution of Christians, true believers. And it wasn't until about the 16th century in the Reformation movement before the back of sacramentalism began to be broken. Man started to say, no, wait a minute. I want to think for myself. I want to be protestant. I want to think for myself. And man began to invent things. Going through the Industrial Revolution. Man began, got smarter all of a sudden. You know, in a sense, that's good. It's good to resist. It's wonderful to resist sacramentalism. Salvation by automatic ritual. Absolutely. But man thinking for himself, guess what happened? 200 years later in the 18th century, with man thinking for himself, for his own, it brought in the next dangerous epic movement or system. And that was rationalism, where man started to rationalize away all the things that you and I believe by faith. We are so thankful. What about the songs we just sung? Songs about Jesus. Songs about all of the things that we sung about. We know those things by faith. The things that we teach from God's word, that we believe in, that we hang our hat on. We do it by faith. Rationalism is the enemy of faith. Because rationalism is a guy that sits down and he says, I don't really think it happened. I'm thinking for myself. I'm using my mind. People are smarter today. Began in the 18th century. Rationalism. Thomas Paine once wrote The Age of Reason. You know what he said? In that, he debunked the Bible, and he affirmed that the human mind is God. And the Bible became a slave to rationalism. And rationalists assaulted scripture, denied the miracles that were found therein in the word of God, denied the inspiration of the word of God, denied the infallibility of Jesus Christ, denied the gospel in the name, get this, of scholarship and human reason. Now, these movements didn't go away, and that's the problem with these dangerous seasons or movements. They don't come and leave. They come and stay. If we only had to deal with one thing at a time that was an enemy of the word of God, it might be easier to do. But we really have to keep our eyes open. I didn't say it by the way Paul did. They're dangerous. They're savage. We're still under that, and they don't come and leave. They come and stay. We still have sacramental religions today. We still have rationalism today. But then that brought about politicism. Politicism, where the religious world became preoccupied with political power. It developed what was known as commonly the social gospel and the reconstruction and liberation of religion. Then down the stream of time came the 19th century and the 20th century, and it brings us in about the 1950s. Some of you will know exactly what I'm speaking about. In the 1950s, the dangerous movement or epic known as ecumenism. That's when man decided, let's take doctrine and cast it aside. We're not going to divide over doctrine. Cast it aside. We don't want to divide over doctrinal issues. Let's just get sentimental. And sentimentality became the issue. And friends, there was a new hermeneutic for interpreting scripture. And it was called the Jesus ethic. 
And they determined that Jesus being a nice guy, and I'm going to tell you this right now. There has never, ever, 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 ever been a greater man than Jesus. There has never been anyone that ever walked the face of this earth that was a better person than Jesus. There's never been anybody that was a nicer, we would use the common vernacular if you forgive me, a nicer guy than Jesus. That is a fact. He is the greatest man that ever lived. He was tempted like you and I in all points, yet without sin. All that. And died for you and he died for me. Paid the greatest price ever paid on Calvary for your sins and mine. But make, make no mistake about it. The idea of ecumenism where they cast aside doctrine, this is what they said in this new hermeneutic for interpreting scripture, the Jesus ethic, here's what they said. Since Jesus was such a wonderful person, such he, since he was such a nice man, he wouldn't have been involved in all that negative stuff. He wouldn't want anybody to be negative. So what we're going to do is we're going to take all the bad stuff out. All the negative stuff out. All the judgments out. And this is what happened. They began to tolerate evil and disdain doctrine. And the legacy of that was a lack of discernment. But then in the wonderful 1960s, I was born in the 1960s, came the dangerous season of experimentalism where truth comes from feeling. Truth comes from intuition. Truth comes from visions or prophecies. Special revelations. You no longer look to the objective word of God, but you look to some subjective intuition to determine truth. And people began to be drawn away from the word of God. 1980s brought subjectivism when psychology captured the religious world. We were more concerned, or man was more concerned about bumping himself up the comfort ladder a little bit. Man was more concerned about being successful and making money than serving God. Man-centered religion was developed, and needs-based religion began, and personal comfort became the goal. In the 1990s came mysticism, where you can believe in absolutely anything you wanted to believe in, and it didn't matter. Also in the 1990s came pragmatism, and pragmatism basically says appropriate means for preaching are defined by the people. That's not what Paul said. Appropriate means of preaching is defined by the people. Give them a survey and ask them what they want, and as soon as they tell you, you give them exactly what they want. That's not what Paul said. It's not in my Bible. Expository preaching was then viewed as the Pony Express method of delivery in a computer age to a lot of folks that didn't want it in the first place. Man decided that the key to effective preaching, get this, was image or style and not content. Sound familiar? Let me ask you something. All these things I've mentioned so far, I'm going to mention another one before I make this point. And you just ask yourself, are these things still in existence today? Later in the 1990s came syncretism. All religions, and here it is, all religions that are monotheistic. You know what that word means? That means it's a big word that just means worship one God or recognize one God, the existence of one God. So all religions basically, in essence, are monotheistic. And if that's the case, all monotheists are saved. 
As long as you're a monotheist, you're saved. And there was a man that wrote a book about it. Remember that? Back in the 90s? He wrote a book that he went to heaven. And you know what he found? He saw Confucius. He saw Buddha. He saw Mohammed. He saw Orthodox Jews that specifically rejected Jesus. Let's use our thoughts here. Let's really think about this rationally. Think about what, the, what, what that's telling us. People that rejected Jesus, they were there too. Why? They were monotheistic, serving one God. Who else was there? Get this. In that book, it said that there were atheists in there too. Atheists that were seeking truth. Now think, think about this. In heaven, for reward, for all eternity, by a God, given by a God you didn't even recognize existed. This was their rationale. Their rationale was this. Their rationale was, well, even though they didn't believe in God, they were seeking truth. And since God is the ultimate truth, they, in essence, in a backhanded sort of way, were really seeking God. They're in there. Monotheist. Monotheistic religion. Recognizing one God. They're in there, too. Folks, that is syncretism. And the list goes on and on and on. There's a greater need to preach the word of God today more than ever before. And you know what? Because of the dangerous seasons. And you know what? There are dangerous substitutes. That's what they are. They're dangerous substitutes to the word of God. And every single thing that I just said of those seasons that come down since the 4th century, you will find a remnant at least of every one of them today. Every one of them. Look in verse 2. Paul defines a little bit more about these dangerous seasons in general descriptions of the people that are behind them and people who are involved in them. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, hard, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What if you took that list to somebody today? Politically incorrect stuff, isn't it? I'm so glad Paul said it, not me. But you know, I'll tell you something. Paul would have been very unpopular today among those that reject the word of God. And he was, too, by the way. We read about it in his life. They beat him and stoned him and all manner of things when they rejected what he preached. You know who else was the most politically incorrect, hated, and despised man that ever walked the face of this earth to those that rejected him? It was Jesus. You know what he said in Matthew 23? You snakes and vipers. Now, I don't think I'd ever use those words. I'm glad Jesus did. He can get away with that. I don't think I'd get away with that very long as a preacher calling, preaching out snakes and vipers. He said, you whited or whitewashed walls. You liars, you hypocrites. Matthew 23, we don't have time to go there. Read that sometime when you talk about politically incorrect verbiage. Verse 5 sums up these folks that are involved in these dangerous seasons or movements. I'm going to read verses 5 through 8 and we're going to move on. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. 
a form, a form of, uh, of, of godliness. And from such, what's it say? Turn away. From such people, turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Get this. He uses this example. Remember Janus and Jambres? They were the magicians in the days of Moses. And they rejected Moses and his teaching. All these people that he's talking about that are behind these dangerous movements and seasons and follow them. They're just like those magicians that rejected the word of Moses. And what does it say? So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. One more verse. But they will, they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. That's basically telling us the truth is going to prevail. And it will and it has. But number two, a second reason, I won't spend as much time on the rest of the reasons. If, if you think I was just one, we got four more. The majority of what we had to talk about for time was on that first point. But there are other very compelling, very, very serious points here. Why preach the word of God, Paul? We pre preach the word of God because of the devotion and the example of the saints. Now what we're talking about is we're talking about those that have gone before us. Why preach the word of God? Because of the devotion of the saints. Going down to verse 10, please. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, Paul said. My manner of life, my purpose, my faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. Notice what he says. You want to know about people paying prices and doing difficult things? Look at the next verse. Persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. He's basically saying this. He's basically saying, Timothy, you understand what I've been through. You knew about the imprisonments and the beatings, and I took it all. You knew in Lystra when they stoned me and took me out and left me for dead. You know all that. You also know what I've told you. You know what I've preached. You know what you've been taught. Timothy, just do what you're told to do. Don't reinvent the wheel. Don't reinvent preaching. Don't reinvent things to teach on. Just do like I did. Do like I have taught you. In other words, I love how this is put. Somebody put this like this one time. In other words, you're in a long line of a relay race. Just take your baton now and run your race. You grab that baton and just do your turn now. And you do it in the face of opposition, persecution, or whatever it is. Because anybody, he says, that will live godly, it doesn't say might, it says will suffer persecution. Run your race, Timothy. Then going down to verse 17, he says that the man of God may be perfect or complete. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works or thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know that phrase, man of God? That phrase, man of God, is a technical term. 
It's found 70 times in the Old Testament. It's found twice in the New Testament. And every single time, you know what it's referring to? Why do I make this point? Have you ever heard somebody say that does a good, good deed for someone? And by the way, it's wonderful to do good deeds for people. But have you ever heard somebody say when they did a good deed for somebody, oh, that's a man of God because of their good deed? Every time, 70 times in the Old Testament, twice in the New, every time the phrase man of God is used, it's referring to somebody that has done two things, handled or write the word of God and delivered the word of God every time. One example, 1 Kings 13, nameless prophet, what was he referred to as? The man of God. It's an example. There's 69 others in the Old Testament. Every time it's referring to someone who has taught or delivered the word of God. Timothy, you are just another preacher. You are just another preacher in a long list and a long line of preachers. Now, grab the baton, Timothy, and run your race now. I'm going to say this too. It always has been, it still is today, and it always will be a privilege to preach the word of God and not a right. Just because I am a faithful member of the body of Christ and I'm a man does not by right give me free reign to teach and preach from God's word in itself. It is a privilege to preach the word of God. It is not a right. My tailor's starting to begin learning to drive. And I told her something yesterday. And if you have ever had driver's education, you've heard this too. If you are going to enter into driver's training, you will hear this. You will hear somebody say, driving is a privilege. It is not a right. Therefore, you can't reinvent the, the rules. You've got to follow along with the rules. Or you know what happens? Some judge takes your ability or your privilege away. You know when you realize, you know when I realized... What a privilege it is to preach God's word when something happens and you can't. That's the truth. Listen, I'll tell you. There was a time a few months ago I didn't know. I didn't know. I mean, I went, if you pardon the expression, I actually, I went from a preacher to what I felt like Forrest Gump. I, I absolutely did not know. If I didn't get better, I was never going to be able to preach again. I felt brain dead inside. My mouth, I couldn't speak. I told Tina, if I don't get better, I wasn't ever going to quit. But I said, if I don't get better, I'll never preach again. And that was awful. Now, fortunately, I'm on the way back. Not there. I'm on the way. But I'm going to tell you something. All the men here always look at it just like that. It is a privilege to preach God's word. It's not a right. There was a story told about an old preacher one time that had lost his battle to cancer. And he was laying on his deathbed, and he was surrounded there by his loved ones. His son sat next to the bed, and his son says, Dad, what do you want? He opened up his eyes, and he turned his face to his son, and he said, I want to preach one more time. He had written a sermon on heaven, and he never got to preach it. And that's all he can think about on his deathbed, a dying preacher. I want to preach one more time. He died. 
At his funeral, his wife made copies of all of the, of the sermon and passed it out to everybody in the audience. And so, in essence, he got to preach one more time in his death. Why is that a big deal? Is that a big deal? Absolutely, it's a big deal because it's a privilege to preach God's word. But thirdly, and hurriedly, another reason to preach the word of God is because not only the danger of the seasons, the devotion of the saints, but the dynamic of the scripture. The dynamic of the scripture. There is nothing in all the world that has a greater power than the word of God. Nothing has that power. Going down to verse 15. And that from childhood, look what he tells Timothy. From childhood, you have known the holy scriptures. You knew it from childhood. You know what that word childhood means? It comes from a Greek word, brephos. You know what that means? Infancy. In other words, there was something that you had as an infant in your mother's arms. Before you were trained by your grandmother and mother. And listen, understand this. When you were an infant in your mother's arms, you had something. What did you have? The Holy Scriptures. You've had them, Timothy. You've had the Holy Scriptures. Notice. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You know what he's saying? You've had the Old Testament You've had the old scriptures. You've had them from infancy. And you know what it did? It was so dynamic. It was so powerful. That you know what it did? It made you wise. And when you heard the word of God and you heard the gospel preached, you accepted it and you obeyed it. Why? Because you've had the dynamic of the scriptures. You've had it from an infant. That's powerful. Those scriptures made him wise. And when he heard the gospel... He was saved through faith in Christ Jesus when he obeyed the gospel. Sometimes people say, do we preach from the Old Testament? Absolutely. We are not guided by the Old Testament law. That's a fact. But the Bible does say these things were written for what? For our learning. Don King preaches a sermon, I think his dad did too, called The Honest Gentile. That's an amazing sermon. You know what he does? He goes through, in essence, he narrates through the whole Bible. You know what his point is? Here's the whole point. If you just did that, and you were an honest Gentile, an honest man, not knowing anything about how God dealt with the nation, the Jews, and you just went through the word of God from start to finish, you would be converted, you would be saved if you had an honest heart. You know what he's saying, in essence? The dynamic of the scriptures. It's enough. It has the power to save. It gave Timothy wisdom. The Old Testament scriptures prepared him for the gospel. And you know, some translations say this. Instead of the scriptures, some translations say sacred writings. If we would give the word of God that kind of credit, I think we'd follow it better, wouldn't you? If we'd recognize it is sacred writings. The power of the word of God that it has. The law was a tutor. And the tutor didn't teach anyone. A tutor or a schoolmaster. You remember what I said this not long ago. A tutor brought man to the teacher. 
The old law was just that. And by the way, a tutor, a schoolmaster, those are not religious phrases. That's really if you're actually in school. And a tutor or a schoolmaster, they never did the teaching. All they did was took you straight, the pupil, to the teacher. Teachers, Jesus. Old law took man to the teacher, to the master teacher, to Jesus. That's what Paul is telling Timothy here. That's what he's saying. And it made you wise, he said. It made you wise. Bottom line, he's saying the word of God has the power to save. The psalmist David said in Psalms 19 and 7, he said it converts the soul. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Everything in the word of God is God breathed, all of it. It's given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. Coming back to that word, reproof. Reproof, correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped or thoroughly finished unto all good works. Now, that phrase, reproving sin, first of all, look at this. It sets us upright and trains us in the path of righteousness. Why is the word of God dynamic? Because it does just that. It sets us up and sets us on the path. Now, look at the progression here. You lay the foundation of doctrine from God's word. It reproves, even by itself, it reproves error and sin. Then you correct it with the word of God, correcting error and sin, the greatest form of love any man can show today, other than giving your life for somebody else. When you correct it, that reprove, it literally means in the Greek, to make someone upright, get this, make someone upright that has fallen down. That's what that means in the Greek. That's amazing. What does? Me? No. Oh, no. I'm just a, another one of the preachers in that long line to run my race with my baton. It's the word of God that does that. It has the power to lift somebody up that has fallen down and give them the instructions to never do it again. That's amazing stuff. Now, also to set us on the path of righteousness and train us for an obedient life. I can't fathom preaching anything else but number four another reason to preach the word of God is because of the demand of the Lord now we could say this we could say because of the demand of the sovereign the word sovereign means by definition uh, ultimate ruler so why preach the word of God, unadulterated from man's device? Why preach only the word of God? Why preach all of the word of God? Why follow what he told Timothy to do? Because of the demand of the ultimate ruler. That's Jesus. Please look at verse 1 of chapter 4. I charge you therefore before God. You know, some translations say, I solemnly charge you. Now, this is a solemn charge. Whether it says that or not, it, it, it doesn't matter. It is a solemn charge. Look at the language here. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Some translations say even the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I have read, I don't know this, but I have read that that's exactly how it's phrased in the Greek, even the Lord Jesus Christ. I charge you before that ultimate ruler. Why? He's going to judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Why preach the word? Because of the demand of the Lord. The demand of the ultimate ruler. The demand of the sovereign. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You know, why do we preach the word of God? What's our motive? I'm talking specifically to all the men here now. Me too. What is our motive? You know what Paul said? Now, I will, I will tell you this. I love, and we all do, we all love it when people love on us after a sermon. We do. We do. It's encouraging to us. We appreciate that. Absolutely. But what did Paul mean when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, it is a small thing what you think of me. Now, what he's saying, in essence, is this. If you don't think of me, if you think of me in a negative way, it really doesn't matter. I have a higher standard to live by. If I preach a sermon, and I do it just like Paul said to do it, and I do it with the right heart and the right spirit and all of that, and somebody doesn't like it, it's a small thing what you think of me, is what Paul's saying. You know why? Because the only thing that really matters is we got it right. And seasoned our word with salt and delivered in the proper manner. That's all that matters. And you know, really, the only thing to reject then is God. That's it. Our goals, our motives needs to be not because of compliments or not because we want to scratch the ears of those that listen. Our motive, our preparation, our study and preparing our lessons needs to be with the Lord in mind. Pleasing the Lord. And pray about that too, that we will understand God's word in such a way that we can deliver it properly and that we get it right. That needs to be number one. We've got to get it right. Why? You know when the Bible says this, the Bible says we're going to be judged out of every idle word that proceeds out of our mouth. But James 3 says, don't be too many teachers. Why? You're going to receive a greater condemnation or you're going to a stricter judgment. Now, he's not saying don't teach. But I think it's understanding here what he's saying. He's saying this. He is saying, understand how difficult it is and how crucial it is to teach it right. I made this point about every idle word. If we're going to be judged out of every idle word that just passes through our mouth during the course of any day of our life, can you imagine how the judgment will be if we do not handle or write the word of God in the eyes of the ultimate supreme ruler? And the judge on the last day, he's going to judge it. Get it right. Get it right. But finally, I'm running out of time. Our last point is we need to preach the word of God not because of the danger of the season, not just the devotion of the saints, the dynamic of the scripture, demand of the Lord, but because of the deceptiveness of the sensual. The deceptiveness of the sensual. <clears throat> the enemy, the great enemy of the word of God is anything outside of the word of God. And the world is full of false teachers. Look in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. 
But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That word sound, that word sound means healthy, whole, or wholesome. There's going to come a time, Paul says, where people are not going to want wholesome teaching. They're not going to want just the solid word of God. They want their ears to be tickled. That's all they want. They are, they're going to be driven by the sensual and not the cognitive. They refuse to hear the great truth that saves. And according to chapter 2 and verse 16, as I paraphrase, that's all that they want. They're going to give heed to rather the empty chatter that produces ungodliness and spreads like gangrene. We are in such a season now that if we want to stand for the truth and stand for doctrine, if we want to be clear about God's word, we're considered sometimes divisive, unloving, and prideful. The prevailing word, the prevailing move in this mood in this postmodern Western culture is that everybody really determines truth for himself. Everybody's opinion is just as valid as everybody else's, and there's no room at all for absolute authoritative doctrine. Folks, that's just one more ism we can add to that long list I gave you earlier, and that is relativism. There was two people talking, two preachers talking about all of the way the world is today. And, and, and there, are, there's wicked, there is wicked things in the world. There is. Absolutely. There's wicked things in the world. Yes, there is. Terry preached a sermon not long ago, and he brought up some of those things. Talks about temptation. Yeah, there's wickedness out there. But I love what some preacher said in response to that. This is amazing. Wish I thought of this. Wish I could own this one. You know what he said? So well, I'm going to tell you this. The worst form of wickedness in the world is the perversion of God's truth. That's a powerful statement. That's the worst form of wickedness in the world is the perversion of God's truth. Therefore, the ability to distinguish between false and truth is absolutely critical. We cannot guard the truth and speak the truth if we do not understand the truth. And sadly today, there's many wonderful folks that are led astray because they don't know the difference. Folks, if we don't take the word to the lost and do so with great encouragement... I'm not, and don't, don't take the word of God to the lost with a moping down face like that. Let's be like when Jesus says, well, if you're going to fast, wash your face. Give somebody a reason by the example in your life to want to be a Christian. Be happy about that. I'm going to heaven because I'm a Christian. There's nothing greater. And there's a whole lot of other things. That's a sermon for another time. All the blessings in this life because you're a Christian. Great stuff. Right from the word of God. But the greatest form of wickedness is the perversion of God's truth. We have to know what's true and take it to the lost. Because if we don't, there's too many dangerous movement substitutes that come in. Let's always remember that what feeds sensual desires cannot honor God. I'm going to tell you something. I'm not making fun. And I'm finished. I'm done. But I want to tell you something that happened in Pensacola, Florida. And I'm not making fun. There was a bunch of people that got together for some sort of revival. Some sort of religious revival meeting. 
And it was reported they were flipping and flopping and rolling and jumping and screaming and calling out. And they said, it was God. It was Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit. Friends, I'm going to tell you, to say all that stuff is from God is an insult to God. You know how I know what God wants me to do? When his word is revealed to me when I have a clear mind. That's how I know it's God. The Holy Spirit and his great work revealing God's word. It's an insult to say flipping and flopping and flapping and rolling is from the Holy Spirit. I don't, I'm not trying to make fun, but I don't know any other way to put it. I want to emphasize the word of God. Because that and only that has the power to save. I wonder if there's anyone here into the sound of my voice that is not a Christian. If you are not a Christian, the word of God that we talked about in great detail today tells us exactly how to be one. The Bible says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Also, after we hear the word of God, the apostle Paul, or Jesus says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Jesus said in Luke 13 and 3 and also verse 5, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Jesus also said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, if you'll confess me before men, I will confess you also before my father, which is in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you also before my father, which is in heaven. That confession is simply, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. These steps are unto or pointing toward the point of salvation. And these are prerequisites to the step that actually is the point of our salvation. And that's when we go down into the waters of baptism, contact the blood of Jesus, rise to walk in newness of life, and Jesus himself adds you to his church. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.